an experimental podcast, which is what we are trying to do here, right? We're trying to do that, yes. Yeah, yeah. let's see. Buzz, you and I, we um, work at the same company, Xing, in Hamburg. And since we work together, we decided, well, we can also do a podcast together. And uh, all these discussions we uh, have at work, we can also just try to record them and maybe make it a podcast, right? And that's what we're trying to do right now. Yeah. And um, we, we thought for a long time what the format could be and came up with... Yeah, we came up with a like a few topics that we uh, want to talk about and um, if we look at like what the scope of the topics would be it would be like obviously us being iOS developers we talk about iOS we talk about Swift um, and we talk about Apple related uh, things um, and yeah let's see where where, where what it is we, we end up talking about um, one of the things we want to discuss today is uh, is keyboards for example um, where we will touch upon, well, from from anything related to the MacBook keyboards to to other keyboards. Yeah, so let's uh, let's start with that. You tried the new new MacBook keyboard, right? Correct. So you talked about it, and and I was uh, interested in trying it out. So I went to the Apple Store, uh, which is a lot easier to get to here. So it was really easy just to walk. By the Apple Store on my way home and, and quickly tried out and I was surprised. I was I liked it. Um, I like the current keyboard in the or the old keyboard in the old new MacBooks with Touch Bar, so with the butterfly mechanism. And yeah, and the new keyboard feels a bit softer. It's it's not as tacky. Uh, I think Apple also tells us that it's not as loud, and that's definitely true. Um, yeah, from the few, from the brief moment that I played with it, I, I like it. I would never, I would never like update my MacBook just for that. Um, but I think Apple is going the right way with the with the new keyboard, and let's see that it will be longer lasting now. When you compare the the feeling with the new new and the old new and the old old keyboard, like the one that everybody longs for. Do you like the the new ones actually better than the let's say than the one from the 2015 machine? I do. Yeah, I feel like the old old one um, is mushy and smudgy, and mm -hmm. I really liked it at the time. I think, um, but you get used to the new thing, and I like the like the short travel. Once you get used to it. Uh, it's just, at least for me, it feels reliable, mm. and yeah. Which it's actually interesting because I may be an old fart, but I I really like the the old old the the chiclet keys much more. I have to say, I have the the new old MacBook, the 2016 one, and as you know, I use it all the time with a Microsoft ergonomic sculpt keyboard um, because it has almost the same keys than the the old old MacBook from Apple and I love that a lot. I actually like it so much that I have two additional Sculpt keyboards in storage at home because I'm afraid that once mine breaks I can't buy it anymore. And, and buying them is actually complicated because Microsoft in its infinite wisdom decided that in Germany where we are working, where we live, it's impossible 
to buy a sculpt keyboard with an international keyboard layout. You can only buy it with a German keyboard layout. And if, I mean, most people listening to this probably never tried a German keyboard layout, but it's awful for programming. Like all the, all the parent to these keys, they are really difficult to find. It, it's really tricky. It, it slows you down a lot. So a lot of developers basically choose US keyboards. And when you buy an Apple laptop, for example, you can decide which kind of keyboard you want with your laptop. Microsoft doesn't offer that. You are forced to use the German keyboard or you have to pay extra to import something from the UK, for example, or from the US. And it doesn't even work for their Surface, for example, or anything. Well, nothing. They, they just offer the German keyboard. That's it. You are forced to use it. It's crazy. It's insane. So I actually have to pay extra to get the keyboard I want because Microsoft doesn't think that I'm allowed to use a proper keyboard. It's insane. I, it always gets me heated up. <laughs> I can tell. It's interesting, though, because uh, I know that a few of our colleagues have German keyboards and I obviously don't like them or I'm not used to them because I'm not from, from Germany and I've never used, like, I don't type the German language. Um, but a lot of our colleagues, I think, do have the German layouts, also developers. Um, so I think it's like a matter of getting used to it. But yeah, it's weird that they don't offer any, at least international keyboard layouts in, in Germany. Yeah, it's, imagine you're an expat. <laughs> you want to buy your device here and you're like, huh, so yeah, I mean, now I have to learn typing German or what? Basically, basically, that would be the case for me yeah, if I would yeah. want one of them. Yeah, so the, the interesting part is that um, I used to program on a German keyboard and I only switched in, I think, 2004 is when I switched. And it felt so much better. And I think many developers, German developers, that use a German keyboard, they just are used to it because that's what you learn in school, right? And and that's what you go to university with. So it, it's not obvious to decide at some point, okay, I need this other keyboard. But for me, I, I, at some point, I just felt, let's try this out because I read about it and I decided to try it. And it, after a brief moment, it feels much better. I didn't even program in 20, uh, 2004. I didn't even <laughs> touch a computer back then. Well, as I said, <laughs> old fart, old yeah. fart. One um, one other thing about the, the, the Apple keyboards is that um, you seem to really like the Apple keyboard. My girlfriend also seems to really like it, it much more than the old old, just as you do. So there, there seem to be people who actually prefer it a lot. But, but then also there's the issue with the with the crumbs, right? Where the, where the keyboard just stops working if there's some dirt below the... Did you have that already? I Like I said, I didn't have any issues yet hmm? uh, with the keyboard. Um so like until something happens I can't really complain because I like it. Mm. Um but the like the people that have issues and it's not just one person, it's quite a few few people having issues. It doesn't really sound good, so I'm not really that confident about the keyboard uh like in the future. Mm. But for now it's fine. And yeah, let's see where, where the future goes. And I think also, I mean, Apple is quite the company that chose to uh, to move to these keyboards. So they must have at least some reason to, to do that, right? I mean, they think it's the future. Well, they also want smaller devices. But but yeah, I, I mean, I can understand that many people like that keyboard. Um, the, the problem with the, um, with the quality when the keys get stuck... I, that's to, I mean, it seems like they fixed it, but it's still quite an issue that that actually happened. It happened to mine. So I'm, I'm mostly using an external keyboard. And the few times that I actually use my, my keyboard on my MacBook um, is when I'm on a conference, for example. 
when I'm traveling. And it actually happened that on my space bus stopped working. And so I got it fixed again by, by, with, with uh, air. But um, what I'm now doing is I have this foldable ergonomic keyboard. It's something cheap I bought off Amazon for like 30 euros. And so I always take that with me when I'm on conferences because nothing is worse than you when you're traveling and your keyboard doesn't work anymore. And since now I feel like that could happen all the time to me, I'm basically I'm bringing an additional USB keyboard that's foldable, very small, and I can place it on top of the Apple keyboard and it's connecting over Bluetooth. And since the Apple keyboard is... Um, it's so shallow, I can actually type on the, on the foldable keyboard that has chiclet keys, really nice, and I don't, the, the Apple keys, they don't trigger. So actually I can put another keyboard on the Apple keyboard on my laptop and it works fine, which is kinda insane, but I always bring it when I travel now and I feel like then I'm at least, I'm safe that when the keys stop working, I can continue pro programming. Because imagine you, you go on a, let's say to a remote, office for two weeks and then the first day you arrive your keyboard stops working and you can't do any work that would be uh, less than ideal so to speak definitely definitely yeah but i i think apple did uh like i saw an ifixit article that apple has added some kind of uh silicone or some kind of protection to the new keyboards as well so they didn't only make them quote unquote better um, but they did add some protection, it seems, to maybe to make them more durable and, and prevent them from breaking. I guess time will tell if that works. Time will tell. And in the worst case, you people can just buy the external foldable keyboard and we'll probably link it in the show notes and then you're always safe. Um, Is this a sponsorship? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to the next uh, topic. Um, last week we had eight years of Swift. Yeah, I think it's almost uh, two weeks already, but uh, it's been eight years since Chris Latner started on Swift at Apple. Uh, that's crazy, eight years. That's a long time. And it has been in the open for four years already, which is also kind of a long time. Yeah, and, and Well, I, not in the open, but released. Yes, yeah, so it was released in 2014. Um, and yeah, but also that, like it's four years. Yeah. That's, that's, it's, yeah. it's quite a bit of time. Yeah. It's a lot. And, um, the, we did some research here. So when, I mean, Swift obviously appeared because uh, I remember Chris said that after writing Clang for C++, he was really unhappy and thought there has to be something better than C++. And that's when he started working on it. And Kind of at the same time frame that Swift was invented by Chris Lettner, um, JetBrains also started working on Kotlin. They started on, only working like three months later. And um, Rust was officially picked up by Mozilla, also in 2010. Um, Rust was actually um, invented by Greg and Hoare in 2006, but he worked on it mostly alone. And in 2010, Mozilla said, well, this seems to be a nice language. Let's start contributing to that. And so it's all really around the same time frame. And um, for Rust, Graydon Hoare even said that he wants, wanted more safety, more concurrency, and less mess than C++, which also is, going back to Chris Lettner, is something he also felt that Swift needed to be like. I feel like this is something that happens like from time to time, like not only with programming languages, of course, but with 
yeah, anything you can think of. Think of a computer or uh, the TV or or the car. Uh, I think something similar happened there where people started to think about new transportation systems at the same time. And I think it takes time to understand why that is, but I think there you can always find some reasons uh, why this comes together at a single point in time. But it's really, really interesting to, to think about. Especially since these languages are so similar, right? I mean, with Kotlin, Rust and Swift, you have traits or um, protocols, um, protocol extensions, associated types, optionals, enums, generics, functional programming, idioms, pattern matching, uh, value types, a lot of um, enforcement of safety and so on. So all these things are really, that were obviously researched much earlier, but it's funny that in 2010, Several people came up with the idea, okay, let's take all this research and let's make really beautiful, nice new programming languages without knowing really from each other. I would think that that's actually like because it started at the same time. And yes, it was researched like previously, um, but it was like in this 2010 time frame where people knew about like what what had been researched and what were actually the pain points in like in practice, not just in theory. And then where they actually started like thinking about hey how can we solve these pain points and that's also i think why you see this overlap in mm. features when you first heard about swift what was what was the the most interesting feature for you that's a that's a good question i think like yeah, just to, to to go back a little bit i was at a um at a keynote viewing party And it was a keynote viewing party of an Apple block in the Netherlands. So there weren't that many developers. And I think there was a lot of confusion when Apple announced it because it was like, yeah, like half of the room was like, ah, who cares? Like, why don't you, why aren't you announcing hardware or whatever? And half of the room was like, oh my God, this is either crazy, like this is going to be great. Or like people like, really? Like, why didn't you like improve on Objective-C? So I think... At the announcement, it was like, what's going on? Um, what I, what came to mind first is playgrounds. They showed this balloon playground where you saw this hot air balloon like going over the screen with animations in playgrounds where you could like build this uh, like incrementally and see the code compile like just after you wrote it. Um, and you had all these graphs where you could actually see the movement of the the play the the balloon, and I think that was really cool. And I think we didn't really understand how powerful it was at that point, or what really was going on. Um, but I think that's that what that's what stu uh, stuck with me about when Swift was announced. And obviously, we had a rocky, um, just like the hot air balloon going up and down. I think we have a have a rocky history with with playgrounds where it still isn't magical um, but I think Xcode 10 has some uh, some good improvements there so really looking forward to actually playing around more with playgrounds again and see if they are a bit more stable for me I was I was also at the I was at the WWDC 2014 when it was actually announced and I had before that I had started learning Clojure and Scala because I felt like I felt a bit bored with Objective-C I have to say I, I can't really give it a d different name. I just looked into into other programming languages. And um, so the day before the keynote, there was this 
indie Mac dev event where a lot of lots of developers were uh, were sitting around. I was talking to these German developers and we were playing Kino Bingo, um, thinking what could happen next. And because I I had the feeling that nothing was happening happening with Objective C, and they said, "So what what do you think will become?" And I said, "Yeah, I think Apple will announce a new programming language." And they looked at me like I'm a stupid moron. Like, really, they looked at me like <laughs> this guy doesn't re really doesn't know anything about <laughs> Apple, obviously. And um, but in my mind, I thought they would do something with JavaScript because they had just announced a, a new JavaScript bridge and so on. So I felt I felt like maybe they're doing something in that direction because there had been nothing with Objective C. So when Swift then actually was announced, I was mostly happy that there was Swift because. Uh, because I felt like I, I really wanted to have a new programming language with a bit of uh, functional programming and so on on iOS and macOS. I really wanted that. And when it was delivered, I was like, wow, that was, this is like the best. Like for me, the whole language was the feature I was longing for. Yeah, I don't know if we really had this functional programming like mindset from the start with Swift. Um, I think it was there. Like you had filter and you had map and you had flat map, uh, I think from Swift 1. But it were, they were all still free functions, so you didn't even call them on a sequence. You would just like uh, use them as free functions and pass in the array or the sequence that you wanted to, to map on. Um, but I, I've been feeling that that's been growing over time. And I like before Swift, I didn't know about map and flat map and, and filter. And honestly, I think if I should name like one feature of, of Swift or like programming language in, in general that I wouldn't want to miss like for anything, it would be that, which is really interesting because when I started learning about map and flat map and filter and reduce, I was really like, I don't get what's going on there. And once it clicked, it's like, oh my God, where has this been all my life? And I, I wouldn't be able to do it anymore without I, I felt the same when I learned it was back with Scala, but there was, I felt the, th the same. I was like, this is just awesome. I want that. And then I I had still had to write Objective-C code and I added these schisms on top of everything so that I would also have the same facilities. But it was it, it didn't look as beautiful with Objective-C. I mean, it's tricky to make it look beautiful with Objective-C. I mean, beautiful is nice, but in the end, yeah, usability is, uh, is key. Those are, yeah, it's really interesting yeah, how, yeah. how quickly it can change as well. Like once, like it's not there and it's there and you learn about it and it's like, I can't do without it. Mm. And I think that's that's fascinating. I had that like more than with nullability. Which is crazy if you think about it, because that's like like much bigger bigger impact at least on what ends up like uh, at the client as well. Like it prevents crashes, but then it's the map and the flat map that actually makes programming easier that, that sticks, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, it's like writing writing a line of that makes you happy somehow. Most of the time. Yeah, yeah, not, all, yeah time. not always, yes. <laughs> I remember when we had, we didn't have compact map yet, and we had like three overloads of flat map, and you did something kind of complicated, and the compiler would just say, I don't understand you, please give me more hints. That wasn't as nice. Talking about um, features that uh, Swift has or, or doesn't have, um, you're giving a talk about the history of Swift before it was released, right? Um, yes, so I'm giving a talk at TriSwift in New York in September, and I will be talking a bit about the history of Swift, um, like going back to 2010-ish, and looking at what crazy stuff uh, Chris and the the team at Apple actually came up with before uh, the 1.0 was released. It's going to be really interesting. There's there's some 
fun stuff there. Do you have maybe a small example of what to look forward to? Um, I mean, I shouldn't spoil too much, of course, but uh, let's just say that one of them is that uh, function, like a function in Swift, we, we have this func keyword. And that's what they started with in, in 2010, uh, func. And then at some point they changed it to def, uh, which you might know from Python or, or Ruby. Ruby. And now we are using func again. Funky. Funky. We, we also came up with the idea of um, having one random topic of the day that we can briefly talk about and that is not really tech related, but might still be interesting to talk about. And uh, I'm not so sure about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, so Benedict came up with this uh, uh, crazy, crazy thing. Um, peanut butter pizza. Ugh. So we were, um, a couple of weeks ago, the company we were focusing had a offsite for um, improving our CI system. And there was a um, burger and pizza place close by. And some of the guys said, hey, this is a great place. We always wanted to go there. Um, let's let's go there and have food. And since most of the team joined, we also joined. And it, it was great like to go there with all the people. And when we arrived, we realized, huh, it was a vegan pizza and burger place. Um, but we still stayed. And then I had to look at the at the menu and they had a couple of different pizzas and they had they had a peanut butter pizza. And to me, that sounds like a awesome piece of food. It, it, that, like it, it can only be good food. And so I ordered it and I was severely disappointed. It, it didn't taste enough like peanut butter for one. It also didn't taste particularly good for another. But I feel like a good peanut butter pizza could taste really good while Buzz is of kind of the opposite opinion. Yeah, I mean, peanut butter pizza, or at least peanut butter is not something I like. So <laughs> that's all like basically where it stops for me. Um, but I do remember something like kind of similar is that I ate a pizza pancake once, which is a pancake dressed as a pizza, basically. So a pancake with tomato sauce and salami, and which also sounds awful to many people, probably, I think also to me. Um, but at that time, it was like, ah, yeah, let's try this. But Dutch people do eat a lot of stuff with peanut butter, right? I, I had peanut butter fries in the Netherlands, and I had uh, like their satay sauce, which is added to everything. Isn't it like that? Yes, you have you have uh, peanut butter sauces, and, and uh, I'm also not a fan of those. Um, I can tell. We, yeah, we we have those. Yeah, you are also uh, talking at a conference in a few weeks. Yes, so that it's a, a, a nice sec from the food topic because it's also about food. Well, not the conference. I'm giving a workshop at the NS Spain in uh, in Logroño in Spain, which is a really nice conference. I've been there already the past two years, and this time I'm giving a workshop on uh, macOS development, um, but not with uh, marzipan. Instead, like actual Mac de app development using using interface builder and cocoa bindings, which allows you to create to prototype apps really really fast um, and to easily build prototyping prototype tools for example development tools and so on that that's kind of the topic and one th particular thing about this conference is that um, there's this fantastic tapestry and after the conference day when everybody is done and since it is in a small city where people can no go nowhere else all the developers go into this 
tapas street and everybody eats tapas there and they have really good tapas and once the conference finally ends on the last day there's a huge wine fest going on in that in that city so lots of people come over from all over spain and they're all celebrating the good wine and eating tapas so this is a conference that's really nice in general because it's an ios conference you there are good talks and so on but it's also a lot about the food and the wine okay so that was a really nice story about food and i could talk about food for hours i'm i like food um there is one thing that stuck with me though interface builder you've mentioned interface builder well when you are building prototypes for yourself or, or things that only one person works on i think it it's nice it's a nice thing and um, these cocoa bindings Interface Builder is really optimized for it. You can do it all in code, but that takes much longer than actually doing it in, doing it in Interface Builder. You can actually create a simple app in five minutes if you want that, that is kind of interactive because um, these Cocoa bindings, it's, it's a bit like um, ReSwift or Redux. A unidirectional data flow. Yeah, like RxSwift, yeah. And, um, but it's all built kind of clicked together in Interface Builder and that makes it really easy. And you are also giving this workshop regarding macOS. How yes. did you how did you learn macOS? I um I started working well actually when I started op developing Objective C I started on the Mac. The, there was no iOS. And so I started working developing and working with Mac apps and and slowly learned it basically by myself and wrote a couple of small apps and then started out with bigger apps and then iOS became a thing and a lot more people started developing Objective-C, so there were more resources. I also did iOS development, but always continued working on the Mac. And at some point I wrote this uh, Mac app called Photodesk, which was a Instagram client for the Mac. And um, a lot of people bought that actually on the App Store and that made so much money that I was actually able to quit my job and go indie. And so I, I did indie Mac development for five years um, before I started here at Xing again because I, I felt I wanted to, to have a change. So I, I actually, like in my heart, I'm still a macOS developer. So you do you want to return to macOS development at some point or do you, right, what are your thoughts about marzipan and how does that tie into each other? Um, I, I, I'm a huge fan of marzipan even though, so there are a lot of iPad apps that I would love to have on the Mac where I hope that with Marzipan they will come to the Mac. Like, for example, Netflix, I really want to have that on the Mac. Um, and I, I tried the current Mojave build uh, on my MacBook Air and it, the, um, the apps don't feel 100% like native Mac apps. The scrolling is a bit different and so on. But for me, that's sufficient. Um, but it's also that I think that I, really native native Mac app that actually uses AppKit and so on can still go miles beyond what a Marzipan app for example can do if you if you specifically want to target the Mac and if you have the resources um, you are not uh, tied by the sandbox for example you can do a lot more things you can um, call Unix scripts and and get the output and you can do a lot of things that you can't do with the sandbox and also the UI can be much better adapted to the Mac but for many apps, especially those that already exist on iOS, where the resources are not there to port the app over to the Mac, Marzipan is going to be a very welcome addition. I'm, gonna, I'm actually really interested in the like the pitch and the story that Apple's going to tell uh, related to Marzipan, because it might be like optimized, like or like partially UI kit, but in the end, you're still going to end up with a partially hybrid app, and I think it is to be expected that you can feel and that you can see that it's uh, such an app. And I'm really wondering how Apple is going to tackle this, how Apple is going to sell this to not only developers, but also to customers. I wonder if 
Well, I'm, I wonder a bit if customers will actually t be able to tell. And also, I mean, it's still a beta. So it may very well be that once it actually launches, um, the, the scroll issues, for example, will, will be gone and it, it feels much more native than it currently does. Yeah, definitely. But it's going to be interesting. I'm mm. really looking forward to, yeah. to it. Um, really looking forward to actually starting to use those apps because I don't I didn't install Mojave yet and I didn't try it yet. Um, yeah, I think it's it like the potential is uh, is huge. Like obviously, because there are so many companies that don't have those resources uh, to build Mac apps, Mac OS apps, or even are doing like an Electron app, for example. And I'm really interested in seeing what what developers come up with, in, including. Uh, ourselves and it could very well uh, give a boon to the Mac in so that there will be more apps and then people become more interested in developing Mac apps and maybe also having a look at AppKit and maybe in the future it will also be possible to to I think currently you can't do something that is half UIKit half AppKit on Mac it has to be either or um, but maybe in the future Apple will allow that and then you can basically start with some with a generic thing that you port over from iOS with, with UIKit and then you can add specific like additional windows that are AppKit based and are more tied to the Mac that you can just merge somehow so that you can piece by piece integrate AppKit into it to make into your app to make it a more uh, even more native Mac app I don't know maybe that's possible in the future do you think that Apple at some point will Actually, like rewrite or like modernize AppKit, or do you think with this, with the announcement of Marzipan, that that will be a no for the coming years? I think that my my personal opinion is I, I heard a couple of times that Apple apparently is working on a declarative UI approach, and um, the current Xcode 10 build has this new playgrounds feature where basically um, it doesn't recompile the whole file but only your selection for example so only parts of it are actually being recompiled and this to me feels a lot like something that you would need if you were doing declarative UI um, where basically just the one function that defines the UI for example is being recompiled while the app is still running and then it's just re-injected into the app and the UI will be updated which, which is just what React Native does or Java with hot code reloading and um, seeing that in playgrounds and hearing all the rumors about a declarative Swift based UI that's coming I feel like yeah something like, like that is probably coming and there will be very tight Xcode integration and we will be able to have this um, this tight loop where we edit code and the simulator will display the changes immediately. That's what I feel. But I'm not sure if it will come next year or in two years. But I think Apple is working on that. That would be really interesting. As well as like, and maybe I'm like making a leap here, but I'm also thinking about faster unit tests and actually being able to do more more TDD, um, which would be which would be amazing. Um, especially right now, uh, while like I am an iOS developer, but I'm working on tooling and other things where I'm actually using Ruby. And it's such a nice feeling to be able to do test-driven development and actually like test while or test before you actually build your feature. And on iOS right now, it's like, it's not doable. It's really like not an option. One thing I, I do a bit of Rust on this side. And one thing I like about Rust is that your unit tests up can be part of the of the source file. So you define a struct, for example, with a couple of functions, and in the bottom you define the unit test for that. So you don't have to go into the file system, add a test target, add a file to that, uh, give the file a name, come up with something, import XC test, and write a couple of things, and then do it. You just write a function, 
at the bottom of the file and give it a flag that says test and that's it and then you then basically you you add the the expectations you have for your for your um for your function and you're done and it's it feels like the difference between just taking a sip of water or and from a from a glass you have on your desk and going to have to the, go to the kitchen, take the water out of the fridge, opening it, pouring a glass of water, closing the fridge and going back. So I'm, I feel, see that myself, I'm adding much more unit tests to, to my Rust code because it's so simple. And for the, for the, on the iOS side, it, it's much more difficult and involved. I think that's a good point. Like because it's so, so, so much more involved, people don't like writing them and you end up with like less testable code because you don't think about it as much. Uh, and and in obviously also with with fewer tests, um, yeah. This uh, sounds like a great episode. I would say uh, we go out into the sun now, and that seems like a good idea. Yeah, let's do that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.